Amen. Each Reformation Sunday, my little tradition I do is I like to preach from a Reformation era Bible. And I mentioned this particular Bible in my uh, newsletter article for the October newsletter. I mentioned this. It is uh, it's called the October Testament. This is a modernized edition of a Bible from 1549. And that 1549 Bible was based on the work, the, the original translation work of a man that we're going to talk about today, William Tyndale. So it's my, uh, this is a treasure. I actually got this on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. This came in the mail on October 31st, 2017. This is my 500th anniversary. This is a treasure. I love this Bible. And it is a great privilege to be able to preach from it today. So if you will turn with me in your Bibles to our scripture reading for our text today, we are in Paul's second letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2. And we're going to look together specifically at verses 8 through 10. But for some context, I'm going to back up and read the first 10 verses of 2 Timothy chapter 2. I ask if you'll please rise with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. Paul's second letter to Timothy, chapter 2, and we're going to read together verses 1 through 10. This is God's holy word for us as people today. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what things you have heard from me... Many bearing witness, the same deliver to faithful men who are competent to teach others. Therefore, suffer affliction as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man who wars entangles himself with worldly business, because he wants to please him who has chosen him to be a soldier. And though a man strive to win a competition... Yet he is not crowned unless he strives lawfully. The husbandman who labors must first receive of the fruits. Consider what I say. May the Lord give you understanding in all things. Remember that Jesus Christ, being of the seed of David, rose again from death as declared in my gospel. For which gospel I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even in bonds. But the word of God was not bound. For this I suffer all things for the sake of the elect, so that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Let's ask him to bless our time in his word. Father, this is your word to us, your people, and I pray you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Pray that you would write your eternal truth upon our hearts. Teach us today. Do your work in our hearts. Mark our lives by this time we spend with you as you speak to us, and we'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.
Each Sunday, we all recite in unison, in prayer to God, the prayer our Lord Jesus taught us, the Lord's Prayer. As Jesus' teachings spread, excuse me, Jesus originally taught this prayer to his disciples in his native language of Aramaic. And as Jesus' teachings spread to non-Aramaic speakers, both Jews and non-Jews, his teachings were translated into Greek, the common language of the Roman Empire in the first century A.D., All of us learned the Lord's Prayer in English, and we all recite it each Sunday in English. We are able to do that only because someone translated the Lord's Prayer out of Greek into English. And what a gift that is to have that prayer in your native language, something we recite almost without thinking in English, is easy to take for granted. But this was not always the case. There was a time when no English speaker had ever heard the Lord's Prayer in his own language. It didn't exist in English at one time. And you might think that the reason is because no one had gotten around to translating it yet. And that's true, but there's a deeper reason It was illegal to do so. At this time period during the Middle Ages, we'll say rough rough numbers, round numbers, about 1,000 to 1,500 A.D., the Bible was confined to a Latin translation called the Vulgate, the Latin Vulgate. In the 1300s, a forerunner of the Reformation, a man named John Wycliffe, translated the Bible from Latin into English, but because Wycliffe was in such trouble with the Catholic Church in England of his day, the translation was banned by the Catholic Church of England, and all unauthorized translations were outlawed. So opposed to Wycliffe was the authorities in England at that time that once he died... In the, in the late 13, I think in the 1380s, once he had died, they later exhumed his body and burned it. They burned him in effigy. They couldn't get him while he was alive, but they could dig him up and burn him after he was dead. This is how opposed they were to him and to his Bible. Wycliffe's followers lived on in England, and they became known as the Lollards. And some of them retained his translations of the scriptures. In the year 1519, so skip ahead about a century or so. In the year 1519, in a a town in England called Coventry, seven adults were arrested and condemned to death. Their crime was teaching their children the Lord's Prayer in English. And their punishment, all seven were put to death. They were burned alive for teaching their children the prayer that we all recited in English. The prayer we recite every 
Sunday without a second thought would have gotten you burned at the stake by the Catholic authorities of the Church of England at the time of the Reformation. An English Bible, Christian, an English Bible is a costly treasure. And many men and women have paid a high price for you to have it in your language. When we hold a Bible, this one is read to commemorate the blood of the saints just so we could have it. When you hold your English Bible, and if you're like me, you've got like 30 Bibles laying around somewhere. And most of them are on the shelf, and you pull off one or two, and you've got two or three you use all the time. 30 different English Bibles, and it was illegal to put the Bible in English once upon a time. It's so easy to take it for granted. But we have been given such a costly gift, a Bible in your language. In our passage this morning in 2 Timothy, Paul tells Timothy about the high price he himself has paid for the sake of God's word. Paul says that he is bound in chains for preaching the gospel. But the word of God, he says, cannot be bound with chains. Paul assures Timothy that we have an unfettered word a word that is free and that is able to set others free. As we look at Paul's words today and we expound his message to Timothy in the text, I want to draw a parallel, an application to the attempts made by the church in England during the time of the Reformation to put the Bible in chains by arresting the translators. The work of the church to make sure the Bible stayed locked away in Latin. And the story of a great man used by God to set that word free. Today we're going to look at the work of a man who suffered just like Paul did, who embodies Paul's words in our passage to unleash the word of God to his native people in the land of England. The man who gave his life so that we might have an unfettered English Bible. I'm talking about my favorite Protestant reformer, William Tyndale. Before we get to Tyndale, let's start with the text, and let's look first at the bondage of Paul for the sake of the gospel. Look at what Paul says in verse 8. He says, Remember that Jesus Christ, being of the seed of David rose again from death as declared in my gospel. This is the summary of Paul's proclamation of Christ. The gospel that got Paul beaten, chased, persecuted, opposed, locked up, and ultimately killed, that gospel message, this is the basic gist of it right here. He tells Timothy, in his last letter to Timothy, before Paul leaves this world, he says, Timothy, remember something. Remember Jesus. Remember the gospel. If you don't remember anything else I've taught you, Timothy, remember the gospel. And what is it? A few basic things. Remember Jesus Christ. Now, Christ isn't his last name. 
like his parents weren't, you know, Joseph and Mary Christ. You couldn't find them listed that way in the Bethlehem phone book. Christ is his title. Jesus is his name. Christ is his title. We usually put titles in the front like President Biden, King Charles III. We put the title in the front, and they just stuck it on the back. Now, sometimes you could say Christ Jesus, and that's perfectly appropriate. Here, it's Jesus Christ. And it's his title. And Christ is the Greek word for a Hebrew word that just means to anoint someone with oil. And the anointed one is the Messiah. The Hebrew word is Messiah. The Greek word is Christ. That's who Jesus is. He's Jesus the Messiah. Remember that Jesus is the promised one, the one who's come to fulfill the promises, the one who's come to do the redemption God guaranteed us in the prophets. He's the Messiah. He's our Redeemer. He's our Rescuer. And then he says, Remember that Jesus Christ, being of the seed of David, a descendant of King David... This is a way of saying he's not just that redeemer that's on his way to fulfill God's promises and rescue his people, but he's the one who stands in the line of succession. He's the successor to the throne, the heir of David's throne, and therefore the heir of David's kingdom, and therefore the heir of all God's promises to David about that kingdom, that it's going to be eternal, everlasting, that one day a king will sit on David's throne, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. That's... What being of the seed of David is about. This is the dynasty of David. This is his royal house. This is the promised one who would come and fulfill God's covenant with David. He's the Messiah, Redeemer, Savior. He's Jesus the King, seed of David. The one who will rule all nations forever and ever. And then he says, being of the seed of David rose again from death. If he rose from death, that assumes that he died. The death and resurrection of Jesus, this Messiah, this King, how did he accomplish his salvation? He bled and died on a Roman cross. How is he going to fulfill the everlasting kingdom of David that's promised? He was raised up from the grave. That his cross was his triumph That when he was mounted up on a cross, though his enemies could not see it, the eyes of faith can see he's mounting his throne. His victorious war chariot is his cross. And had the enemies of Christ known this, Paul says in, in his letters to the Corinthians, had they known who he really was and that they were playing right into God's hands, they never would have crucified the Lord of glory because it was the beginning of their end. It was their ultimate undoing. They thought they were killing him and putting an end to his messianic reign when actually they were doing the very thing that guaranteed your salvation. Played right into the Lord's hands. That's why the joke's on them. And the cross is not the greatest defeat, but the greatest moment of victory. Colossians chapter 2. This is his proclamation. He died and he rose. Remember this Jesus, Paul says. This is his basic proclamation. And this message is getting him nothing but trouble. Look at verse 9. He says, For which gospel I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even in bonds. 
He suffers evil. He suffers trouble. He is, he is considered by his opponents an evildoer, a troublemaker. Someone who's overturning every city he goes into. He preaches this message. People start getting saved. The kingdom gets landed on foreign soil. The church takes root and it begins to influence and affect society and commerce and culture. And it's nothing but trouble because it's upsetting the pagan world. And Paul is persecuted. And everywhere he goes, he knows. He says this in the book of Acts. Prison is waiting for him. Paul was imprisoned for his preaching. He says, I was imprisoned for this gospel, for which gospel I suffer. A similar story can be told about William Tyndale. As the father of the English Reformation, Tyndale was among the first wave of those who recovered Paul's gospel. The gospel that got Paul in trouble and the gospel that got the reformers in trouble. And for this, he was persecuted. Tyndale wanted to free the Bible from its Latin captivity so that all could see the gospel truth for themselves. This he made his life's mission. And he famously declared that his goal was one day to translate a Bible into English and to put it in every man, woman, boy, girl, every child, every adult. He wanted an English Bible in everybody's hands in England so that the day would come when the poor, simple little plow boy, he called them, at his little plow, digging his little rows to plant his little crops, off in some remote corner of an English village somewhere, out in the field, he, he, his goal was to have the day come when that young little boy knew more of the Bible than the priest and the bishop up in his high tower. Why? Because they would have it for themselves. And if they had a Bible in their own language, they could see the trickery and the devices and the lies and the deception and the distortion of the gospel that so many, he believed, were peddling in that day. A translated Bible was essential for the Reformation. A Bible in the hands of the English people in English or in the hands of the German people in German or in French or in Italian or Dutch or any of the languages of the native peoples of Europe at the time. The key to the Reformation would be getting that Bible in their language so they could read it for themselves and see the truth for themselves. And not have to say, oh, well, it's in Latin, and listen to us, we'll tell you what it says. None of us like the slogan, trust the experts today. <laughs> and they didn't like it back then either. Oh, well, just trust us. I'm Father so-and-so. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a priest or I'm bishop, whoever. And it's in Latin. You can't read Latin. That's okay. Pat you on the head. I'll tell you what it means. And nobody could check it out for themselves. So Tyndall said, no, we need the Bible in our own language. This is how they're getting away with preaching a false gospel. And if they could just see it in English, they could see it for themselves. A translated Bible was essential for the Reformation and for the practice of what we believe, sola scriptura, that the Bible is the ultimate authority. But if you don't have access to it, you can't know what it says, you can't check it for yourself, and you can't submit to it. You just have to submit to the other people who tell you what it says. This is why you should have a Bible 
with you at church and not just say, Pastor whoever, Pastor Wesley is just going to tell us like it is and we can just take his word for it. I mean, I'd like us to have a trusting relationship, right? You did hire me to be your pastor, so hopefully we can, you know, trust each other. But still, am I infallible? No. Is this? You better believe it. So get it from the book. And if you don't see it in the book, then ask me some questions. That's why you have a Bible in your pew. That's why you have a Bible at home, because it's essential. It's essential. And it wasn't always possible for you to have it. This got Tyndall into great trouble. So Tyndall fled England in 1524, a wanted man. He fled to Germany. And in 1524, he acquired a Greek New Testament. He found some printers. He found some people who would protect him, and he got busy translating. On the run, in Germany, illegally, he begins to translate the New Testament into English from Greek for the first time in history. Amazing. Let us return now to Paul. As he writes 2 Timothy, his final letter before he is martyred by the Roman government in Rome itself, he reflects on the fact that no matter how much he suffers, no matter what his enemies do to him, the word of God cannot be bound. God's word is living and active. It is free and it cannot be contained. And this reality gives Paul tremendous confidence and assurance. And he writes one last letter to Timothy to pass on to him this same confidence and assurance. Look earlier in our passage. Look up to 2 Timothy 2, 3 and 4. Paul says to Timothy, Therefore, suffer affliction as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man who wars entangles himself with worldly business because he wants to please him who has chosen him to be a soldier. Be a good soldier, suffer affliction, you're on the battlefield, and if you're on the battlefield, you don't have time for civilian affairs. You got one job to do, you got one mission, it's your duty. And you don't have time to get embroiled in all these other, all these other things that are happening. You're on the battlefield. He tells Timothy this, be willing to suffer the affliction of a good soldier. Earlier in the letter in chapter 1, verses 8 to 12, he says to Timothy, Be not ashamed to testify of our Lord, to bear witness about Him in public. Neither be ashamed of me, who am bound for His sake, for the sake of the Lord. But suffer adversity also with the gospel, through the power of God. Suffer through God's power, he says, with the gospel which is the power of God. Verse 9, who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our deeds, but according to his own purpose and grace, which grace was given through Christ Jesus before the world was, but is now declared openly by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has put away death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The next verse he says, Of this gospel I am appointed a preacher and apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles, for which cause I also suffer these things. 
Paul suffered tremendously for the sake of of this gospel, and he was able to do so because of the confidence that this gospel gave him. The gospel of a powerful Savior sent by the living God who has brought life and immortality to light through this gospel. Oh, what assurance it gave Paul. It was the thing that got Paul through the nights in prison, through the beatings and the lashings and the whipping through the jeers and sneers and the scoffing and the mockery and the marginalization and getting run out of town and threatened with death and arrested and hunted. How did he do all that? There's a lot of reasons, but one of them is he knew what a treasure he had in the gospel. He knew what a Christ he was serving. And he's trying to give Timothy some of that. Don't be afraid to suffer the affliction that comes with the gospel. Don't be afraid to do it. Tyndale was a man who lived these words of Paul as truly as Paul and Timothy ever did. Tyndale has been called God's outlaw. He was a wanted man in England. And he was in constant danger in Europe as well. He went into hiding in Germany in 1524. And two years later, he produced the very first translation of the Greek New Testament into English in history. In 1526, when the translation was completed and the first copies were run off the press, he sent his New Testaments to some men he had hired, some Englishmen who were doing business in, in Germany. He sent them to these men that he bargained with to become Bible smugglers. These men took loads and cases of Tyndall's little 1526 New Testament, and they hid it in their cargo and took it across the English Channel and up into England, and they secretly went around to pubs and handed them out. Can you imagine handing out Bibles at a pub? <laughs> you know, but in the 1500s, what are you going to do? There's not a game on the TV. So people are more interested. And you can't imagine this. They've never seen it. They've, what, do you, what do you mean this is a Bible in English? First of all, it's illegal. So just to take one could get you in deep trouble. If you're found with an English Bible on you, that's a risk. Can you imagine? But it was worth the risk because they opened it up and they're like, this is my language. This is English. Look at this. 1519, people just got burned at the stake for having the Lord's Prayer in English. 1526, seven years later, they've got the whole New Testament. In Greek, from Greek into English, not from Latin. And it it was absolutely electrifying. Absolutely electrifying. People risking their lives to hand these out in secret. They were imported into England, secretly circulated throughout the country. And when this was discovered by the authorities, political and ecclesiastical, the church ordered all these New Testaments to be confiscated and burned. You imagine the church burned the Bible officially. They found every New Testament they could find from Tyndall, put them in piles, and burned them. And a price was put upon Tyndall's head, 
and English spies were sent by the government and the, and the bishops, the high-ranking bishops. English spies were sent into Europe to find him. Tyndale was hunted and forced to be on the move all over Germany and then in Belgium. He was very good at hiding, very good at doing this on the run. And he had some friends that were very loyal to him. In, 15, in 1526, he gets out his first New Testament. And at this point, he begins learning Hebrew and translating the Old Testament into English. He's unstoppable. 1530, after just four years, he completed the Pentateuch, the first five books of the, of the Old Testament. By 1535, he had translated Joshua all the way to Second Chronicles and the prophet Jonah. In 1534, he completed his revised second edition of the New Testament, which is his definitive edition that everyone began using. And you can buy a modern spelling edition of that 1534 and read it for yourself today. His translations included prefaces for each biblical book, as well as lengthy introductory essays about how to read Scripture and what chief doctrines are taught in Scripture. In addition to this, Tyndale wrote multiple biblical and theological works, including a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount and a commentary on 1 John and several other polemical documents. And in all these documents, he was defending the gospel, he was promoting the Reformation, and above all, he was teaching the English Bible. He didn't write these in Latin, though he was as fluent as you can get in Latin. Tyndale was... Tyndale by... His biographers estimate that he was fluent in about eight languages. The man was, a, was brilliant. But he's doing all this work in English so that English Christians back home could take their English New Testament, their English Bible, and they could take his writings and they could learn the English Bible. Paul told Timothy to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ and to accept whatever suffering comes with it. Paul didn't just say that to Timothy and then back away. Paul lived up to his own words. Paul was executed by the state in Rome not long after this letter was written. And Paul knew that that outcome was on its way. And he tells Timothy this in the letter. In chapter 4, verses 6 through 9, he says to Timothy, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departing is at hand. I have fought a good fight and have fulfilled my course and have kept the faith. From henceforth is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, who is a righteous judge, shall give me at that day, not only to me, but to all who love his coming. Paul was ready, and he gave the ultimate sacrifice. Tyndale was the embodiment of Paul's exhortations and followed in the apostles' footsteps. In 1535, one of those English spies found Tyndale in the city of Antwerp, Belgium. He was named Henry Phillips, and Henry Phillips should sound the same as Judas or Brutus famous betrayers in history. Henry Phillips, the man who betrayed Tyndall. 
He befriended Tyndale, and Tyndale was such a gracious man. This was a man from England, and he quickly, quickly became good friends, at least or so he thought, with, with Henry. Henry gained his trust and then betrayed him to the authorities. Henry Phillips uh, said, uh, William, let's go for a walk down this alley. And, uh, and he says, okay, that's fine. Yeah, we can cut through the alley. But Henry, when we, get, when we finish our business for the day in the market, please come over to, to where I'm lodging and, and be my guest of honor at our, at our table. And he says, sure, but can I borrow a little money for what we're going to buy in the market? And Tyndall hands him, hands him some money. And then he says, after you, after you. And Tyndall's walking in front. Henry Phillips has arranged for, for guards to be waiting for them in the alley. And they get into the alley, and, and then the um, people who wrote letters about this at the time, contemporaries who were there, say Henry Phillips was a very tall man, much taller than Tyndale. And when they got to the point where the ambush was waiting, Henry does this, points over Tyndale's head. And the guards jump out, a couple of them jump out, and apprehend Tyndale. And as they do, Tyndale turns around to warn Henry to run. But there's Henry with the guards. And, and the, the soldiers, they said, were all, almost let him go. They, they had so much pity on him because he was absolutely hoodwinked. He, had, he was absolutely taken by surprise. It was the last thing in the world he expected. And just the innocence and horror on his face. It, they said it, was almost, it almost moved them to let him go, but of course they couldn't do that. Tyndale was imprisoned in a castle in Belgium for 16 months. From June of 1535 until October of 1536. And after refusing to recant, that, you know, to renounce all the Protestant stuff he had written and to renounce his English Bibles, when he refused to recant and take it all back, and when he refused to return to the Roman Catholic Church, he was condemned to death. On October 6th, 1536 is the traditional day of his martyrdom. October 6, 1536, Tyndale was strapped to a post. And because he had been a priest before he became a Protestant, they didn't burn priests alive. And so they strangled him to death with a rope as he was latched to the post. And once he was unconscious, they lit the fire and they burned him. And they did it in public. Executions were all public at that time. But it was too late. Tyndale had already released the Bible from its Latin captivity. He had already liberated the English Bible. And his translations and his writings were now in the bloodstream of the English Reformation. He started it in 1526. They didn't kill him till 1536. That decade made all the difference. Tyndale may have been bound. Paul may have been bound, but the Word of God was not bound. Not in Paul's day, not in Tyndale's day. You can kill the preacher, but the preached message will survive. It will thrive. It will accomplish all that God has sent it to do. The Word of God cannot be bound or fettered. Why did Paul suffer the things that he did? Well, Paul tells us in the last verse of our passage today, verse 10, he says, 
For this I suffer all things for the sake of the elect, so that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul says, I do it all for the sake of God's chosen people, the elect. I do it so that they can obtain salvation. You see, Paul knew God had a chosen people. He didn't know who the elect were. He didn't know where they lived. He didn't know when he would meet them. He didn't know under what circumstances he would preach to them. He didn't know when they would repent and believe. But he knew that God had a people he had chosen to bring to himself, to claim, to say, you are mine. And it's just a matter of time until those people hear the gospel and God does that miraculous work down on the inside and he brings them to faith and calls them out of darkness into his marvelous light. When he makes the lights go on and they see the beauty of Jesus and they come and believe the gospel, Paul says, I'm doing it all for that moment when God uses me, a big, fat nobody, to preach his word and to watch him use me to save a person. What a thrill, what a joy. I do it all for that taste to be used by God to spread his word and to see him use me saying that word to bring his people to himself. What a thrill and what a joy. I do all this for the sake of those elect people God has because they, they must hear the message of their salvation. Paul gave his life to the freedom of the word. He gave his life for the freedom of God's word, the saving gospel of God. William Tyndale's friends said that he was always singing one note. A man who was always singing one note. Tyndale gave his life, same reason Paul did. The one note Tyndale was always singing was the English Bible. The English Bible. He gave his life for an unfettered English Bible. Fully translated and faithfully explained. A translated Bible was essential for the salvation of his elect people in England and for the transformation of the English church. In a book called Fox's Book of Martyrs, Fox says, the last words of Tyndall, right before they strangled him to death and lit the flames, his last words were a prayer to God. O Lord, open the king of England's eyes. The king at that time was Henry VIII. Open the king of England's eyes. Meaning, please do something to move the king to authorize the Bible in English. I've given my whole life for this. I've been singing this one note since 1524. Open his eyes so that he'll let my beloved countrymen have the Bible in English. That was his dying, his dying prayer, and he gave his last breath to that purpose. He was always singing one note. That was 1536, the very next year, because Henry has a, has a conflict with the Pope and decides, I don't want to listen to the Pope anymore. He says, well, we're going to be independent, and if we're going to be independent, we need an English Bible. One year later, Henry VIII authorizes an English Bible. Oh, Tyndall didn't live to see it. 
but he's the one that God used to bring it about. 1537. And that New Testament of Tyndall from 1534 that gets authorized in 37 and ever since then, that 34, 1534 New Testament is the basis of your New Testament today. All English Bibles trace their roots back to Tyndale's translations. He wasn't able to do the whole Bible before they found him, but he's the one who gave us the basis of our English Bible today. The Word of God has not been bound and cannot be bound. Tyndall is gone, but his legacy lives on. Within 30 years of his martyrdom in 1536, within 30 years, England not only has allowed an English Bible, they have embraced the Reformation. And England becomes a Protestant nation. The father of the Reformation in England, William Tyndale, along with many of his other friends and many other men and women that were used mightily by God, these people gave their lives so that we could have a Bible in our language and so that we could be Protestant, so that we could have the gospel, so that we could be here today. The Word of God cannot be bound. A free Bible sets other people free. So, when you, Christian, hold your Bible, when you read it, remember the blood that was spilled and the sacrifice that was made to give you that Bible. Remember people like Tyndale and thank God that he did that wonderful work, that sacrificial work, so that we don't have to. We just get to enjoy the fruit of his sacrifice. Treasure your Bible. Man, take that old dusty Bible off the shelf and read that thing and just be amazed it's in your language. And thank God for it. On this Reformation Sunday, let us all give thanks to God that we have an unfettered English Bible. Let's pray. Father, your word is an absolute treasure. You, you did not have to open your mouth and speak a word to us, but you did. You gave us your inspired and infallible word. You gave it to us in those ancient languages, Hebrew and Greek. Jesus opened his mouth and taught on the hillside that sunny afternoon in Galilee's hills. He spoke the word in Aramaic to his disciples and to the crowds. And those disciples remembered those words. And as the gospel spread and as the teachings needed to go beyond the boundaries of Israel, you moved holy men and women to put that word into Greek so that more and more people could read it. And throughout the centuries, you have moved holy men and women to move that word from Greek and Hebrew into Latin, into all the other languages of the peoples. And that work of translation continues today. And we thank you for that translation of the Bible into our language, into English. None of us have to learn Latin. None of us have to learn Greek or Hebrew. We can just go on Amazon and, and order a Bible, and it's going to be in our language. We can just go down to the store, and there it is on the shelf. It's so easy, Lord, for us to take that for granted. God forbid that we do that. Give us a new love for our Bible. 
Give us a new hunger and thirst to open it and read it. Give us a new interest in Tyndale to look up his works and to read about his life and the many others like him who gave the same sacrifice. Lord, we thank you for the great work of reformation. We thank you that your word cannot be bound. That word above all earthly powers that cannot be vanquished by the enemy. That word that brought worlds into being. That word that saved us. That word that we can have in our language. We thank you for it and we celebrate it. We worship you for it on this Reformation Day. In Jesus' name, amen.